Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Hey, Columbia, thanks for all the conversation this past week about the foreshadowings that you see in Scripture, what I'm calling foreshadows. And the way that you uh, have found some of these texts meaningful, in fact, I've changed direction a little bit today based on some of your feedback last week. And so it's been fun to go back and forth with you, even uh, those who aren't yet able to be present. And I hope many of you will start to come back, even on this time uh, leap forward day. We have quite a a good crowd here in the room at 930, and I hope you'll hear from some of them in the near future about what it means to be back in this place. And that's significant today. Because uh, today uh, marks one year, Sunday, one year ago, that we did this for the very first time, virtual worship, which now we call Columbia Everywhere, and will continue to be a feature in the life of our church. I love the way Chris said that at the beginning of worship. We hadn't said it that way. So Columbia here, Columbia there, Columbia everywhere. Really liked that. So I'm going to rip it off. I really thought that was cool. Uh, But more and more people are going to begin to return, and we're just about to get out of this, and we surely will not do this Uh, for a a second year, and that's a a celebration. We made it. We survived, and I'm so grateful uh, for the people who've made that possible, especially my staff colleagues who are my dear friends um, who are just amazing. They have done incredible work this year, really blown me away, but also the many volunteers that make this happen, make this work, and who really um, we couldn't possibly afford to pay them what they're worth, and I'm, I'm grateful to them. So foreshadows are just powerful things to me. I said last week, and I'll say again, that a foreshadow in the way I'm using it, yes, I'm aware that I'm using a verb as a noun. I just like the picture. It's to represent, indicate, or typify something beforehand. You can also use the word prefigure, though it doesn't quite capture the way that we use foreshadowing in literature or in movies. And I'm sort of picking up on some movies first because I find that to be the common parlance of our day. It's the way we tend to think. And so I used an older movie last week and ruined it for a couple of people. I was surprised to get some contacts from the congregation saying, what was that movie that you mentioned? I was like, really? You've never heard of The Sixth Sense or seen The Sixth Sense? And this one sort of fits in that category too. So those of you in the house, maybe you at home too, but those in the house, I'll be able to hear, you know this movie, right? It's the Shawshank Redemption. It's a 1994 movie. So if I mess it up for you, I'm sorry. But if you haven't been able to see it since 1994, then you know I, I, you must not watch many movies. And if you've seen the movie, which you might not have because it was a box office bust in 1994 and became a cult classic later. So it's one of those movies that everybody probably didn't see in the theater, but has seen since then. And if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's really powerful, really amazing. And if you've seen it, you know that uh, this is Andy Dufresne uh, that's in this picture. Tim Robbins plays him. Morgan Freeman is playing a, a prisoner named Red. They become very close friends and they they hatch a plot which Andy makes possible because he becomes the accountant to the warden. Warden Norton is uh, in the story. And this is Warden Norton. Now, Warden Norton, I, I, I think every time I see this movie, it's just like the lousiest depiction of a Christian. Like exactly what we don't want to be, but unfortunately is like some Christians I know. So I can't disclaim 
this particular picture. Well, what he does is every prisoner who comes through meets with them, and his goal is to convince them that they can't possibly get out, they can't possibly escape, and that the only thing they can ever do is to sort of reform themselves from within. So when they come in, he gives each of them a Bible. And in the front of that Bible, he writes a little, a, little, uh, a little line. And the line says, salvation lies within. Salvation lies within. He encourages them to read the scripture, to get into the scripture. So you know that in the movie, Andy Dufresne becomes, in fact, the first person ever to break out. And so he does make it out. And the way he does it is he is able to acquire by his contacts a little pickaxe, a little rock axe. And that rock axe he stores, where do you think? This is kind of the cool foreshadow of the story. He stores it inside the Bible. So he cuts out a place in the Bible to put the pickaxe and he stores it. And you know this if you understand scripture, he stores it in the book of Exodus, which is all about deliverance, all about, you know, getting out. And that's where he keeps the axe. And for 20 years, every single evening, he works on this way out through the wall. And at the end, he leaves the Bible inside of Warden Norton's safe, which he has access to because he keeps his books and after the breakout, Warden Norton finds the Bible, and in the front of the Bible is written this, you were right, Warden, salvation lay within. So the word picture is the foreshadow, and it's kind of cool, but that's the way it is in Scripture too, because what we see is that salvation lay within. The body of Jesus inside the tomb for those three days was the very presence of recreation the completion of salvation and his resurrection represents new life for us, not just sometime off in the future, but now and carrying into the future, eventually resurrecting from death ourselves and walking to a new heaven and a new earth. So for us, salvation lay within. I love the way that, uh, that, is talk, that Lauren Winter talks about foreshadowing in, in her book, Girls Meets God. I found out this past week that my good friend and colleague, Kristen Clifton, and I share a love of this book. It's, it's just a great book. It's a book I never would have read had somebody said, had not said to me, you need to read this because I'm not a girl. But, um, but the book is not about that. It's about a, a Christian's continuing search for the presence of God. It's just a really powerful book. And in this book, Winner writes, God is a novelist. He uses all sorts of literary devices, alliteration, assonance, rhyme, synecdoche, onomatopoeia, those words are hard to say, but of all of these, his favorite is foreshadowing. And then she says, he was laying traps, leaving clues, clues I could have seen had I been perceptive enough. Now, Winner's talking about her life, not about the Bible, and she's speaking about God as an ongoing novelist, that he continues to write a meta-narrative and write us into it. He's still writing this story of salvation, but she could easily have been writing about Scripture, because in the Scripture, foreshadowing really is one of God's favorite literary instruments. 
I like foreshadowing a lot better than prophecy. Don't get me wrong, prophecy's not a bad word. And in fact, it is a perfectly good translation of what New Testament authors say. But I find we get into sort of a game of, of prophecy and fulfillment and prophecy and future fulfillment that's a little bit off key. It, it doesn't quite fit because what we wind up doing is making the Bible sort of a, a, a book of formulas, a, a mathematical book to be worked out. And we sort of see it as this set of stone-laden things that are to be fulfilled at some time. And God is the fulfiller. And so we find these Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. We see them fulfilled. And then we search for other prophecies about the end times primarily in the Old and New Testament. And then everything becomes a game of Jesus' fulfillment and then all about the end times. And everything in between becomes kind of a gap. And what we wind up doing is filling in that gap to make everything that we experience apply to the end times somehow. And that causes us to parse the world wrongly And more importantly, it causes us to miss that God is recreating. He is resurrecting right here and right now. When I dealt with the Yes and Amen series on the promises of God, you probably remember I said that we really can't say that God's a keeper of promises because he can't possibly, by his nature, be a breaker of promises. So the Bible says again and again that God is a fulfiller of his word. And because God, as the creator, is always standing above time and space, unbounded, unlimited, unframed by time and space in the way that we are, he is simultaneously speaking his word and fulfilling it all at the same time. Does that make sense? And God, is, God doesn't speak it at one point and fulfill it later. That's our experience. He is speaking resurrection and he is fulfilling resurrection right here, right now, always. That's what God does. He is the great fulfiller. So I got curious, as I told you last week, and I'll run through this pretty quickly about a couple of places in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, in Paul's great resurrection chapter, he says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. So Paul saw these foreshadows of the resurrection, as I pointed out last week. And then in John, after he was raised from the dead, the apostles recalled what he had said, and they believed the Scripture, it says. So the apostles saw foreshadows of the resurrection in the Hebrew Bible. That was their scripture. It's the only scripture that Paul and Jesus and the apostles had. And so they saw these foreshadows. And then in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45, or 45 and 46, when we see the apostles with Jesus in Luke 24, they're walking with the risen Lord and he blows their minds so they can understand the scripture. And the scripture tells them that Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day. So Jesus saw these foreshadows of his resurrection. But what's intriguing about this is there is no overt, extant place in the Old Testament where it says that a Messiah, a messianic figure, will die, will rise on the third day in that kind of precise language. So what we have in the Old Testament are these remarkable foreshadows. I got intrigued this past week when the number of people in our congregation who communicated with me said to me, you know, I've been curious about that too, and I never checked it out. My own father, a pastor, he said to me, I've always just kind of read across that. I never bothered to wonder, and that amazed me because he's been doing this for a long, long time. He's 82, and so he looks in there and he says, you know, I'd never gone back and looked at those foreshadows 
And I said, well, it's been powerful for me to do that, and I hope it's powerful for you. What foreshadows did Jesus, Paul, and the apostles see in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures? So I told you last week, resurrections are easy to find in the Old Testament, the concept of resurrection. I told you that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't. I told you that it was common in Jesus' day and Paul's day for Christians to look for the resurrection of the dead, even the bodily resurrection. In Isaiah 26, 19, we see this clear indication of some kind of resurrection. Your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Like, like the dew of the ground, they'll rise up. Or in Daniel 12, 2, which also gives us a bit of a foreshadow of a messianic resurre- uh, resurrection, but quoted by Jesus in Matthew 25, 46, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and some to the shame of everlasting content. And then in John, remember, in the story of the raising of Lazarus, Mary, or Martha rather, tells Jesus, I know that Lazarus will rise in the resurrection at the last day. I know that resurrection occurs. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of the, and the life. But finding foreshadows of a messianic third-person resurrection is a little more complex It requires a bit more sleuthing, and yet I think these foreshadows are fairly easy to see once we actually look for them. Like Lauren Winter said, they were there for me if I was looking for them. Foreshadows in our life about what God is up to, about what he's doing. They're there for us if we're willing to look for them. So I've said there are four places we need to explore The first place was David's Psalms, right? So Psalm 16, Psalm 22. And of all the responses I got this week, what caused me to really focus on the servant songs of Isaiah, the suffering servant songs of Isaiah, as the second place we've got to look, is the number of people who said, wow, I was blown away by Psalm 22. It's clear allusions to the cross and the passion of the Christ and then that little vignette at the end that little picture of resurrection that we find at the end is there another place like that in scripture and there is and it is in the last of Isaiah's suffering servant psalms now before I jump into the one I want to read let me just say to you that not all of the suffering servant psalms in Isaiah fit the life of Jesus and the passion of the Christ as easily as the one I'm about to read. I can say further that I am absolutely certain that Isaiah did not know he was writing about a future Messiah who would die and rise again. Now, that might bother somebody. I think a lot of people want to believe that he had this granular, clear picture. But all you need to do is read Isaiah carefully and you'll see that's just not the case, nor should it be. Nor would we expect for Isaiah to have that kind of prescience, though he was being inspired by God. That's not how we see God work. He doesn't give us these detail-rich pictures of what is coming. He gives us foreshadows. That's the way he's always moved and always operated. We can say, I think, that there's some double entendre in the book of Isaiah. But even that is not fully necessary because what Isaiah was writing about 
is Israel. Israel was the one that would suffer and rise. Israel is the one that would continue to live. Israel, the nation, the people, the people of God, would be the ones who would become, as Isaiah says, a light to the nations. So you don't have to make a big leap to understand that Isaiah had to be writing about Jesus. Now, why do I say this? Because as the Bible depicts it, and especially the Gospel of Matthew, but really all the Gospels, as the Bible pictures it, Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is fully human. He is fully divine. But he is also the righteous embodiment of Israel. And everywhere that Israel blows it, Jesus gets it right. So he recapitulates the story of Israel. The Gospels are written so that you can't miss this. So, for example, in the birth of Jesus, when the family flies to Egypt, recapitulation of Israel's experience. Or, for example, and this one's even more powerful, after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. One day for every one year, the Hebrew people wandered through the wilderness, and he gets it right where they get it wrong. He's tempted in the same ways they were. They fell for the temptations. Jesus does not. Same temptations, different outcome. So through his life, all the way to his death and his resurrection... Jesus is recapitulating the story of Israel. He is the righteous embodiment of Israel. So if we understand that Isaiah is writing about Israel, he has to be writing about Jesus too. Double entendre in a way he never intended, which makes it all the more fascinating. When we get into the book of Isaiah then, we have to be looking for these foreshadows. How is this meta-narrative that Isaiah is clinging to, grabbing onto, how does it become a prediction of what Jesus will become for us, the crucified and risen one? And the place we'll see that most clearly is in Isaiah chapter 53. Again, the last of the suffering servant songs. Here's what I want you to pay attention to, and I'm going to help you at the end, but I want you to watch for these clear allusions, like in Psalm 22, to the torture, the persecution, the crucifixion of Jesus, because you won't miss those. So listen carefully. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation even protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of day and be satisfied by His knowledge, my righteous servant, will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. (laughs) Now, I think you have to see that this is the most uncanny scripture ever written if it is not somehow in part a foreshadowing of what Jesus as the Messiah would be. How could Christians see any other? As we have come to know the risen Lord and we look at this scripture, we can understand why it was so important to the early church and why it should be so important to us. Just look at the allusions to the cross. I think you saw this last week in Psalm 22, a different set of allusions. Look at these. It's more theological in nature than Psalm 22. He's despised and rejected, just as Jesus was despised and rejected. Take a look at John 1, for example. He suffers in our place, a substitutionary gift. And you don't have to look very far in the Scriptures, but you might try the book of Romans. If you're looking for Jesus as a substitutionary means of atonement. He was pierced for our transgressions as Jesus received the nails in his hands and his feet as his side was pierced. He is a sacrificial lamb as Jesus by John the Baptist is said to be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world in John 1. He doesn't open his mouth in protest as Jesus never ever protests when he's persecuted and when he was tried before his crucifixion, did not in any way try to argue his case. He's assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich. As Jesus is crucified between two criminals and then is buried in the tomb of the wealthy man Joseph of Arimathea, there to lie only for a while. Can you see the foreshadows of the cross? In fact, if I read Isaiah 53.10, and I didn't know the Bible that well, I could easily mistake it to be directly from the New Testament. How about you? It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and make his life an offering for sin. That theology is all over the New Testament. Now let's pause for a second and recognize the importance of that. What makes the resurrection possible? What makes it 
possible for us to be recreated, to be restored, to experience new life, and to begin moving toward a new heaven and a new earth. What makes it possible for us to become partners with God in bringing earth to become like heaven? What makes it possible for us to participate in this resurrection and restoration is the forgiveness that we receive through Jesus Christ. I love the resurrection. I believe it is the cornerstone of the whole Scripture. All of my faith is centered in the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead in Christ. But that said, what first captivated me was the possibility of being fully forgiven because the Savior of the world, the perfect Lamb, took my sins and your sins on his shoulders and they died with him if we would accept his death as our own. There was a time in my life where I was racked with guilt and shame. I didn't even know it. I didn't even understand that I was acting out of guilt and shame. Shame is a strange kind of a cycle. Have you found at some point in your life Because we feel bad and then we dig back into the behaviors that made us ashamed just to feel good for a moment and then we feel worse again. And that endless cycle becomes like a rolling snowball that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And before long, I think all of us find that we are completely unforgivable in our own minds. Maybe humans forgive us, maybe they don't, but we feel unforgiven. We experience life as the unforgiven. There was a moment for me, as I was about 20 years old almost, there was a moment for me, thank God it came early in my life, where I was so captivated and so captured by the agony of Jesus on the cross, his capacity to die with my sins on his shoulders, that I felt completely freed. And it was that freedom that allowed me to recognize his intention to remake my life, and he's still doing it. I'd like to tell you it all happened in an instant or in a moment. Like, I'd love to tell you, you know, I gave my sins over. I nailed them to the cross. I've heard people say this, and then I experienced this resurrection, and now I'm happy all the day as the hymn goes, at the cross, at the cross. Now I'm happy all the day. That's not true. God continues to reveal sin in my life. He keeps showing me my selfishness. He keeps showing me places where I have not become like unto him. And when he shows me those things, he invites me once again to kneel at the foot of the cross and to lay my sin and my shame down over and over again so that I can take on the form of the resurrected one, even Jesus. And so I will say this, resurrection will never make sense to you until you have beheld the forgiveness that is possible in the cross of Jesus. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that is unforgivable in the shadow of the cross of Jesus. Nothing. So before we move on, I've got to ask you, have you really received that forgiveness? I know lots of Christians who haven't. Their Christianity is really birthed in, born in, grounded in their shame and their sorrow and their brokenness and their guilt. And so the whole thing for them becomes another snowball cycle 
of feeling bad, feeling bad, feeling bad, feeling bad. They get all the conviction and none of the forgiveness. The purpose of conviction is to show us of our need for forgiveness. And once you've received the forgiveness of the cross, you need to park the shame and park the guilt and move on as a recreated person. And then you will understand the power of the resurrection. Thank God for forgiving me. I was unworthy of it, ashamed and afraid. Thank God for forgiving me, even as recently as right now. Thank God. So we see these pictures of the cross in Isaiah, and if you're like I am, you go, wow, the love of God to send his son and to give him as an expiation, an offering for my sins. In Matthew 8, 17, we find that the New Testament writers see this foreshadow of the cross too. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now, could you just listen for a second at the language here? Because it doesn't say this was to fulfill a prophecy. It was to fulfill the word that God spoke. And so God spoke the word, and he is fulfilling the word. He took up our infirmities. He bore our diseases. What Matthew's talking about here is all the people that Jesus healed and the healing that's possible for us. Or how about in John chapter 12, 37 and 38? Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. That means some of the Jews did not believe in Jesus. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's the very first verse of Isaiah chapter 53. Or how about Romans chapter 10, 16? The apostle Paul says, Not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Now, what we see here is that the New Testament writers clearly saw the foreshadows of the cross. Not just them either. The church fathers did. Here's Origen. He's one of our most famous church fathers. In his important work, Contra Celsus, in 248 AD, he talks about debating with a Jewish scholar who he says was very learned and very smart. And this Jewish scholar insisted that Isaiah was right about Israel, which was true. But he did not agree with Origen that Isaiah also turned out to write about the suffering servant, even Jesus the Messiah. He writes, I I quoted these prophecies from Isaiah 53, to which my Jewish opponent replied that these predictions bore reference to the whole people of Israel. I show this not to say that there was a debate between a Christian and a Jewish believer. I I say this to point out to you that to the early church, Isaiah 53 was incredibly important. But every reference we have so far is to the crucifixion, the passion of the Christ, not to the resurrection. So what about, what about a foreshadow of a messianic resurrection? Well, you were attuned to listen to it to watch for it. So maybe as I read the scripture a moment ago, you went, oh, well, of course, there it is. But it's easy to miss until you understand the connection of Isaiah 53 to the cross. Once you have, you start to see these words differently. And let me break them down for you in a couple of ways. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, 
He will see his offspring and prolong his days. Let me just park on those two passages for a moment. The word for offspring here is a Hebrew word, the word zerah. And zerah literally means seed. So whoever this is, Isaiah writing about Israel and Isaiah writing about a messianic figure, will see his seed. Now we know that Jesus had no literal seed. He did not have children, right? So we can't be talking about Jesus seeing his own offspring literally. But if we understand the New Testament's theology of adoption, that we're adopted through the death and resurrection of Jesus into a family, then we are the offspring of Jesus. We are the ones who have been grafted into the branch of Abraham, right, by the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. And for that reason, Jesus, we should envision, is seeing us, seeing his apostles, seeing all of those who, after his resurrection, took on this new life that he provided for them, his Zerah, his seed, The cross and the resurrection planted a seed of new creation. But more powerful than that is the idea of prolonging his days. I'm going to show you this Hebrew. It's Yarek or Yamim. It means to lengthen literally his time. So this is not some sort of an alliteration. This is not some sort of a a vague thing. What we're saying is that this servant, whoever this suffering servant is, His time will be literally lengthened so that he can see his offspring. Let's continue to read here. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The plan of God for salvation will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, listen again. After he has suffered, listen again. After he has suffered. And the interesting thing is that the verses that come after this indicate that the suffering will lead to death. So after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Let's take a look at the Hebrew again because the English, we could say, could be metaphorical in some way. Is that the case? The section that... Here says he'll see the light of day, literally means he'll see the fruit of his soul's labor. Mamal Napsal. That's an interesting expression, and I want to show you why. Because you may know the word napso and not know you do. It is a form of the word nephish. Now, those of you who've been around long enough, you've heard me preach about the creation. You've heard me use the word nephish. I even use it preaching sometimes because there is no English equivalent. It means a living soul. And so where do we find that? We find that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, a nephish, or napsal is a form of that same word. So the man became a living soul, and Isaiah is saying that when the Messiah comes and rises, if we understand the prophecy that way, that he will be a living soul. This is really awesome. See, this is all over scripture, and we miss it. A few years ago, I preached about the resurrection in a sermon series called Rise. I actually have a book coming out in May with a friend of mine based on that sermon series. And in that sermon series, I said, we miss the signs of the resurrection all through Scripture. So, for example, you remember when Jesus is with the apostles, chapter uh, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is with the apostles in the closed room. I'm going to preach on this Easter Sunday, but not this piece of it. And, and, and in there, it says that, that he, he breathed on them. And said, receive now the Holy Spirit. My peace I give to you. Receive now the Holy Spirit. 
I always thought that was a weird passage, you know? I, and for years I read it and I'm like, it's kind of freaky. Like, I, I think you'll have to, especially in the COVID era, but even before it, if I walk into your house and I remove my mask and I go, <sighs> you're gonna say, there's the door. But they didn't even respond strangely to that. They didn't even ask him, Jesus, why are you breathing on us? They received what he was offering. What is the theology of what happened then? In Genesis 2, 7, God breathes the breath of life into the dust and it becomes a living nephesh, a living soul. And in the Gospel of John, when the risen Lord occurs in the presence of the apostles, he breathes on them the breath of life because resurrection is their recreation. It's their remaking. All through the Gospels and all through the Scripture, what we see is this sign that God is recreating through the resurrection. And that's exactly what happened. And I'm so grateful for that because God could have forgiven me at the foot of the cross. He could have removed that sin and that shame and that brokenness and then just left me the way I was. But God continually is recreating me and recreating you so that we are becoming like the very righteousness of Christ. And to be like Christ is to be God-like. That's what righteousness is. In other words, he's, he's making us capable of living as these new creatures. And that's what is indicated here in the gospel, if you will, of Isaiah's writing. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. He will see the work of his soul, of his physical presence, and he'll be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he'll bear their iniquities. Therefore, I've given him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So as you were reading that, did you see the foreshadow of the resurrection? I don't know how you can miss it. Sort of intriguing to me then when this foreshadow for me is so obvious, when it's, when it's there to be picked up on, there to be seen by those who have eyes and heard by those who have spiritual ears. It's sort of interesting to me that the New Testament writers allude to every other part of Isaiah 53. But don't quote this. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is that the New Testament folk the early church didn't use prophecy in the way we do. They used it to confirm who Jesus was, but for them, resurrection was a singular thing. It, it almost couldn't be compared to anything else. But another reason is they just didn't feel it necessary to do so. There is one place in the New Testament, though, where I'm positive this foreshadow is reflected. And it's the most interesting of all. You ever read this story in Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8, 
Philip comes across an Ethiopian eunuch, and the Holy Spirit leads Philip to this eunuch, and the eunuch is in a chariot and reading scripture, and Philip climbs into the chariot with the eunuch and starts to witness to him, help him understand the scripture. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me, blows my mind. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. See if this sounds familiar to you. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Do you recognize that? That's Isaiah 53, clearly. But it's not the piece of Isaiah 53 in which we find this resurrection foreshadow. So listen to the rest of the story. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or or someone else? And, And then Philip, with that very passage of Scripture, told the good news about Jesus. And as they were traveling Along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now listen, don't you think that absolutely Philip worked his way through the entirety of Isaiah 53, because had he not, he would not have gotten to the part where you'd speak about the very meaning of baptism. After all, the eunuch didn't know what baptism was until that moment, and then he wanted it right then and right there. So don't you think that Philip said to him, let me show you of this Messiah who died, the clear implication that this is Jesus, and then let me show you how he rose again. And then he turned to the eunuch and he said to him, I think, in my mind's eye, and that can be your story too. That can be you. For anyone who dies with Christ rises with him. And the eunuch says, give me some of that. Who wouldn't? How would anybody refuse this gift? How is it possible that anyone would not want This death of sin and shame and brokenness and hurt and pain, all of it, and this resurrection to a new life. The world is starving for this. It is all over the imagery of this world. Foreshadows of the resurrection are everywhere. In every superhero story, a foreshadow of the resurrection. In half the movies I've watched, at least, a foreshadow of the resurrection. In literature, a foreshadow of the resurrection. In the games that children play, a foreshadow of the resurrection. This notion of something dying and coming back to life different. Empowered. It's all over the culture because the foreshadow of the resurrection is an imprint that God put on the creation that cannot be erased. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. I'm pretty clear that Philip dealt with the entire passage and got to that foreshadow of the resurrection and offered that eunuch a new life. 
What do foreshadows do for us? Last week, I gave you five things. I want to remind you of those. They remind us that the whole Bible is about Christ. Everything before is setting the stage for what happens in Christ, his death, his resurrection, his life, and his teaching, and the way the church lives out the risen Lord in its being. Second, God's salvation plan is timeless. It is stamped on the very fabric of creation. It is everywhere. Third, God always fulfills his word. I used to keep his promises as shorthand here, but you remember my preaching about this. God always fulfills his word. He did then, he does now, he always will. Fourth, we still see foreshadows. You see, when we look at Jesus' resurrection, we get a picture of our own resurrection, of walking to a new heaven and a new earth. And fifth, God is still resurrecting. He is always speaking resurrection. He is always doing resurrection. God is the resurrector. He is the creator. He is the new creator. God is still resurrecting. I love this quote from a little book that I read recently called Housekeeping. It says, to crave and have are as like to a thing as its shadow. For when does a berry break upon the tongue as sweetly as in one longs to taste it? And when is the taste refracted into so many hues and savors of ripeness and earth? And when do our senses know anything so utterly as when we lack it? How many of you love the first strawberries of spring? We're getting close. The very first one. It just tastes divine because you haven't had it. You've had the ones at the store that have no flavor. I'm talking about the ones that come out of the ground in a place like North Carolina. And here again, Marilyn Robinson continues, is a foreshadowing. The world will be made whole. Here is a foreshadowing. The world will be made whole. This is God's promise. I will grant you that it will not be completely true. It will not be fulfilled richly until we walk to the new heaven and the new earth. But the scriptures tell us that when Jesus rose from the dead, he began the new creation, that the church is in the process of working with God to bring to earth the stuff of heaven, to recreate the earth. And I need to tell you something, you are being made whole. That's the foreshadow. That has implications for everything in your life. Your marriage, your family, your career, your friendships, everything. God is speaking and God is resurrecting all the time. Every minute, every second, every hour, every day. And if you've known his cross, then you know his empty tomb. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your gift of eternal life that has already begun for us. Forgive us that we put it off in the future. The day we entered the waters of baptism and we claim the forgiveness of your cross and the new creation of your empty tomb, we started 
our eternal lives with you. And after what this world calls death, we will continue that new life with you forever. Eventually, our bodies will rise. We will walk to a new heaven and a new earth. We see that foreshadow and we trust it because we see the foreshadows of Jesus' resurrection and have watched them be fulfilled. Father, give us faith even when we doubt. Give us courage even when we are timid. And give us love the love you showed us in the resurrection, even when we're prone to hate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you. I'm praying for you. You go live the resurrection. Go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, We would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.